Lord, the um, subject that we're covering today, this matter of your loving but painful discipline, is a challenging one for us to consider. And we need your help in not only understanding this text, but how to apply this and how to live in the midst of hard and challenging circumstances. So I pray that today would be a a, a grace-filled message that would give us hope when hard circumstances come. And I pray that you would help me to handle this incredibly important subject in a way that fits with your word from Psalms and Jeremiah, the book of Hebrews and Romans, that we could just get a, a holistic sense of what does it really mean when hardship comes from the hand of a loving, good, and kind God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you take your Bible and go over to Psalm 79, I want to remind you that we started this entire series with this premise that life is hard, the Psalms are honest, but God is good. See, that's why we love the Psalms so much, because they deal honestly with some of the challenges, the pains, the heartaches that we feel. That's why you go to the Psalms when you're in pain, because they're, they're just honest, they're real, they, they give voice and verse to our pain. I wanted to spend some time this summer looking at some honest questions from the Psalms for a couple reasons. In the first place, it's because I, I know that every single one of you will suffer at some point in your lifetime. If you've had a fairly easy life, you're just not very old. <laughs> I mean, you're going to have hardship, I promise you. And the second reason is this, is that it's really important that you learn how to suffer. The time to learn about suffering is not when you're in the suffering, it's beforehand. And I think that good pastors and good churches teach their people how to be able to think, how to be able to live, how to be able to endure when life gets really hard. Because it's going to be hard. A couple weeks ago, I suggested to you that I've seen a common response with people, two common responses as it relates to suffering. Um, Often, people live in a a mode of denial. They're hard-pressed, they're hurting, but they don't want to admit it. They they think it's really spiritual to act as if they're not hurting, and so they deny that this is really tough. On the other hand, I, I used another word that starts with D, the word dissection. So either in denial or in dissection, meaning they're trying to figure out everything that's going on. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? What was the cause-effect relationship? And they, they overanalyze things. And typically you fall into one category or the other. You can relate to either you're kind of a denier or you're somebody who maybe overanalyzes. You dissect things. The problem with denial and dissection are, are not the issues implicit within them, meaning that to deny something means that you just completely live as if it's not real. At the same time, the Bible calls us, doesn't it, to live above circumstances? So there's, there's, in some respects, what denial is, is just living above circumstances, but in excess. And on the other hand, there's this issue of um, dissection, where, you know, it's not right to overanalyze, but I also run into people who they never analyze. They they never think through, man, what's really going on here? So it's important when you're suffering to not only know what the Bible says, but it's also important for you to know yourself, for you to begin to ask yourself some questions, be able to kind of do a little bit of a heart check, and and to be able to evaluate, so what's really going on in this moment? What's taking place? This is important, this distinction between denial and dissection in excess versus taking a careful look at yourself in the right way 
Because in Psalm 79, we pick up this idea of suffering, but this suffering is not innocent suffering like we've seen before, where the, the person is being opposed or they're being persecuted or they have hardship coming, and there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with them per se. Psalm 79 is different, and it gives us another category of suffering. And that category of suffering is suffering as discipline. And so today I want to look at Psalm 79 and just examine this whole subject of the pain of discipline. This is the kind of suffering that comes for the purpose of dealing with sinful actions or latent remaining sinful attitudes. My guess is when you heard the scripture read or when you hear the phrase, How long, O Lord? that you, you tend to think of that category of innocent suffering. How long, O oh Lord? Like you're being, like someone is, is suffering at the hands of others and they don't deserve it. But this phrase, how long, O oh Lord, is actually in the context of a man who is groaning under the weight of the discipline of God. In other words, his, this, this hard question of how long, O oh Lord, relates to how long must he suffer under God's painful correction. That, that changes the conversation. It's not just that he's suffering, but he's suffering because of things that have happened that God is dealing with. Now this is a, an enormously important issue because it's, it's a question that when you get into suffering, you're bound to ask. I've personally asked it to be a, a bit vulnerable and transparent when our daughter Sylvia was stillborn. One of the very challenging spiritual questions that I wrestled through deeply was this. How do I know that God didn't take our daughter because of some sin issue in my life? That's a, that's a, that's a loaded that's a loaded question. I think a lot of people ask that question. How do I know that I didn't get cancer because of some sin in my life? How do I, how do I know that my, my job wasn't taken away because of some sin in my life? How do I know that our, our, our kids aren't re- rebelling because of some sin in my life? Those are, those are really important questions. And I think that there's sometimes that people don't even dare ask them. Oh, they may think them in the back of their head, but they don't even want to bring them to the surface. Well, Psalm 79 addresses this issue of suffering as discipline. And so I want to help you understand the dynamics that are going on here. So let's see what the text is saying. In verses 1 to 4, we see the tough consequences of what the psalmist is dealing with. Look at verse 1 as I read it. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. Don't miss the emotionally elated language here. Jerusalem apparently is sacked. The temple is defiled. There's dead bodies everywhere. There's so many dead people that they can't even bury them all. And in a very disgraceful scene, you have animals that are coming and eating the dead bodies of your friends and relatives. It's awful. He continues, they have poured out their, they have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem. There was none to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. So he even pictures the spilling of blood as common as the flow of water in the city of Jerusalem. This is a, a, a man who is observing the 
humbling that comes through the rod of hard circumstances. It's important for you to know what's going on in the background. What caused the psalmist to say this? There's, there's not very many events in Israel's history that would fit with Psalm 79. So it, it seems as though what the psalmist is referring to here is the invasion of the city of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and the defeat of the nation of Judah, which then was the southern um, kingdom of Israel as a nation in 586 B.C. If you remember in your biblical history that there were two divisions of Israel... There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom fell to Assyria in 722. The southern kingdom fell in 586 to Babylon. And so when, when Babylon comes and, and destroys Jerusalem and leads the people off, they, they're, they're taken captivity, they're into captivity. They're led into Babylon for 70 years. And it seems that this is the event that the psalmist has in mind when he writes this particular lament, this psalm. Now, the, the captivity of God's people, this, this event, was in response to their sinfulness. The, the captivity was because of their lack of allegiance to God. And there's no better explanation of this moment in Israel's history than the book of Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah was sent to help exegete God's actions for the people of Israel so they would know what was going on. So take your Bible and go over to Jeremiah chapter 8 and you'll see the sin issues that Israel is guilty of that causes God to send the Babylonians. Jeremiah 8, verse 7, says this, Even the stork in the heavens knows her times. This is Jeremiah 8, 7. Even the stork in heavens in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow, and crane keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the rules of the Lord. In other words, even the birds know the basic rules of life. But my people, they don't even know that I'm God. How can you say, verse 8, we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us, but behold, the lying cunning of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame, they shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord, so what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors, because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From the prophet... To the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. So what's going on here? The the, the people of Israel have disobeyed God. Babylon has come. And the psalmist is lamenting the difficult and divinely designed consequences that are right in front of him. So there's really tough consequences happening. Now look at verse 5. He's also conflicted internally because of the means by which God is delivering this discipline. In other words, the psalmist struggles with the fact that God used and is using an evil empire like Babylon to discipline his own people. I mean, you know what this is like, right? I mean, it's one thing to learn a lesson from a friend. It's another when a wicked person teaches you something. Like, really, God, do I have to learn this from them? God puts a thorn in your side, a person 
God's got a hard person in your life and, and you just, it, you wish it was somebody else, but it's this person. Or you, you, you left a city and you thought you left that person behind. You go to another city and God sends you the exact same kind of personality, right? To come up to you. You're like, how in the world? It's not, you can't run. God's got this issue in his bullseye. And so he, he uses the Babylonian nation. Look at, Verse 5, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you. Babylon doesn't know you. Pour out your anger on them and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. So the tension, don't miss this, the tension isn't just the actual suffering, it's also the fact that God used and is using a seemingly evil people to accomplish His purposes. I mean, this this creates a little bit of of conflict in one's soul. The, The effect of this, in the immediate, is that it appears as if God's people have lost and as though evil has won. I mean, if you just took a snapshot of Jerusalem, clearly it looks like Babylon, with all of its false gods, is surely greater than Israel. God appears to have sided with Babylon, an evil empire, and the result is that it's really conflicting. So here we have an important thing to note, that God's use of wicked people and His use of bad events is really challenging. God God uses people and things and circumstances that we look at and at first blush we're like, what? Now sometimes people try and resolve this tension by saying, well, God allows these things to happen. And and while it's true at one level that God allows things to happen, that's that's true, I don't think that goes far enough. Because God didn't just allow the Babylonian Empire to take over and to destroy the nation of Israel. He didn't just allow that to happen. He just didn't set it up and then say, well, let's see what happens. No, there's, there's more active agency than that. In fact, he is actually empowering Babylon in their discipline of his people. Take a look at um, Jeremiah 21 and verse 4. I want you to notice here how how much ownership God takes for the actions of Babylon. And while this creates attention, it also, as we'll see at the end, creates a great deal of hope. This is Jeremiah 21 and verse 4. It says this, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls. And I will bring them together into the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you. I mean, I don't know how, how much clearer evident it can be. It's not just that God allows the Babylonian Empire to take control. He says, I myself will fight against you, and God uses the Babylonian Empire to accomplish His ends. And, that, and that's the nature of the struggle with the psalmist in Psalm 79. God, you used a pagan nation to accomplish your discipline. Verse 5, I will fight myself, I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand. 
and strong arm, in anger and in fury and in great wrath, I will strike down the inhabitants of the city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. And afterwards, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people in this city who survived the pestilence, sword, famine, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies, into the hands of those who seek their lives. He shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them or spare them or have compassion. And I myself is behind this. That's hard. God is behind these events as conflicted as that seems. And so therefore, that's why the psalmist says, how long, O Lord, how how long do we have to endure the suffering at the hands of this evil nation? Next, we see humble repentance in verse 8. The next set of verses are an appeal to God for forgiveness and mercy. And what's interesting here to note is that we have no idea if this psalmist, when he wrote this psalm, was a part of the God-fearing remnant who was a preservative agent in the midst of the nation. In other words, we have no idea if he's really to blame, if he's part of the problem, and yet he asks for forgiveness and for mercy, like Daniel did in Daniel chapter 9. He identifies with the collective sinfulness and the waywardness of God's people. So he identifies with us and, 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 and asks for mercy. Verse 8, Do not remember against us our former iniquities, Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation. And notice what he says, for the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Notice notice here that he appeals for forgiveness not on how sorry he is. He appeals for forgiveness, not on the fact that they're, they're not going to sin again. They're, we're not going back, God, because God and him, we all know that's not going to be a promise we can fulfill. What does he appeal to, friends? He appeals to the fame and the name and the glory of God. He is broken and he turns to God's greatness. Now, this is another thing to to really notice here because one of the great benefits of discipline is that it brings you back to what is really valuable and what is really glorious. When when God strips away things in our lives, that's when we kind of get a wake-up call. Oh, that's right. Here's what's really valuable. Or you could put it this way. Humility birthed through hardship helps you to see and value God's holiness. I mean, isn't, isn't, I'm sure your life is like mine, that, man, in the midst of hardship is when I see God most clearly. In, in the midst of difficulty, that's when I really am aware of my need. In the midst of, 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 of disciplining moments when God is surfacing things in my own heart, that's when I'm really, really aware of how much I really need Him. This is what suffering does. Verse 10, why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. So you, you know what, what hardship or difficulties at any level do? You know what they do? What they do is they reveal our frailty. They, they bring to surface our sinfulness at so many levels. Think of your life like a, like a beaker. 
with a solution in it. And then underneath that solution is a, a sediment that's there. We'll call that sediment just your innate sinfulness. Even after you've received Christ, there's still innate sinfulness that's, that's in there. And people look at your life and, and when everything's stable and everything's calm, they look at your life and go, wow, that guy, he's pretty pure. You can see right through them in terms of the clarity. Look at that. And then something comes along in life, a conflict, an issue, a hardship, and somebody bumps your beaker. And suddenly that sediment, it gets disturbed. And this remaining sinfulness begins to float to the top. And suddenly the solution doesn't look so clear anymore, does it? I mean, and that's what suffering or hardship does at any level. I mean, it doesn't take a lot, does it, to surface our innate sinfulness? When we were on vacation, I have this thing going on right now that is just, I can't... I can't figure out if it's old age, if it's if it's the, the, the distractions of life, it's my hair loss. I don't know what it is, but I, I'm, I'm setting things on top of the car, and I'm forgetting about them. And it's driving everybody in our home nuts, including me. And and I've done this with our keys. You know, I drove, drove five miles, and one of my sons was like, what, Dad, there's something on the roof. I'm like, nah, it's just the wind. We pull off the side. He's like, it's your keys, dude. I mean, I was like, ah, how do those get up there? He's like, you, you know? So so while we were camping in the Grand Tetons, I, I, I lost my iPad. And yeah, thanks for the groan. I, you feel my pain, don't you? And I was like, oh, where is this thing? And it's got all of my notes, our travel itinerary. It's got everything on it. It's got like... 40 million sermons of my, you know, it's just got all this stuff on it, and I can't find it anywhere. I looked in the camper, and then I, I thought, oh, you know what? We came out of the laundromat, and I put it on top of the car. Oh, yeah, so I'm, I'm walking around, and, and, and while I'm walking around searching for this, this piece of technology, I'm internally frustrated, right? All, suddenly now, my, my beaker's been bumped, and there's stuff that's kind of rumbling around my soul and all it is is a piece of technology. So finally, I um, ended up going to the security desk and I talked to a park ranger and I said, hey, is there any chance? I lost an, an iPad. I think I fell it off in the parking lot. And he said, is it black? And I was like, yes. And he said, is this it? And I, I wanted to hug him. I was like, oh, you know, I was like. And, and I, said, I said, can I say praise the Lord? He said, I guess. I said, praise the Lord. And so I grabbed it and. And they said, do you have any ID? And I was like, uh, I know the code. And so they're like, okay, well, it's yours. And so I was so happy, ran to the laundromat, showed my kids. And But you know what? In the midst of that, it was just a reminder that in an instant, my beaker can get bumped. Just like you. Kids having to wait somewhere, a difficulty, job loss, an illness, being physically uncomfortable, a conflict in your relationships, those things, they suddenly bump our beaker and guess what starts coming out? Innate sinfulness. Suddenly now we become somebody who we didn't really know we were or we knew, but we do a pretty good job of keeping that stuff down below. But hardship comes and guess what comes out? What comes out is this innate stuff that God wants to deal with. So suffering reminds us that our plans, our comforts, our agenda is not ultimate. It reminds us externally, because hardship comes that we can't control, and that's where some of us have the biggest battle. We're frustrated, so we get angry, because I want to control this, and you can't. And what, what, is, what is that? What is that emotion? That emotion is, I want to be God. I want to control my life. And hardship says, pal, you're not God. So externally it reminds us we're not God. Internally it reminds us that we are not God-like. 
Because all it takes is a loss of a piece of technology, an argument with your kids, somebody cutting you off in the, in the, as, you're, as you're driving home, a, a small misunderstanding in your marriage, and all of a sudden, boom, your beaker gets bumped and all this stuff starts coming out. And you're like, where in the world did that come from? It came from your heart. And it's still there. It shows the remaining sediments of our self-sufficiency. Verse 11. Here's the future hope. This, this is so cool. The psalm ends with a future hope, a final appeal that's filled with hope-filled praise. It's, it's remarkable and instructive. It's remarkable in the sense that the psalmist is in so much pain, yet he does this. And it's instructive because it helps us in our biblical understanding of where discipline should lead us, which is to worship. But that's not where, where we go often. Look at verse 11. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts which they have taunted you, O Lord. And then he says this in verse 13. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise this is unbelievable because he just said earlier how long O lord and that now he's saying but we are your people how long O lord we're people of your pasture how long O lord and from generation to generation we will praise you in the moment it feels as if god is completely done with his people it feels as if god has abandoned them but this is not the case and the psalmist anchors his heart to the promise of god that they are his people God made a covenant with his people. They were his. And this discipline doesn't change the fact that they are his people. In fact, as we'll see in a moment, it just reaffirms that they are his people. He loves them so much that he sends Babylon to humble them so they'll come back to himself. Because God has aims in suffering that are way beyond our aims. Way beyond our aims. God uses pain to keep his promises. Now for some of you, that is a thought, that's a category that you may have never had before. God uses pain to keep his promises. Again, Jeremiah 29. I want to turn there. We'll look in the notes. This is a a verse where God tells Jeremiah what he's doing and he indicates how this moment with Babylon fits into his promise that he is fulfilling with his people. Verse 10, Jeremiah 29:10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Some of you, you know this verse, you've heard it before, but you have no idea that it's about discipline. 
It's hope in the midst of discipline that while you're in the press of hardship and you go, how long, O Lord, you anchor your heart to verses that say, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare and not for evil. Then verse 13 or 12, you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Hey, guess what? You wouldn't seek God with all your heart unless you were in the press of hardship. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all nations and all places that I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is God's plan. He aims to bring his people back. Our problem is we just want the pain to be over now. That's our issue. We want temporary relief and we don't stop and think about the bigger arching plan of God and don't stop to trust Him that His plans are good. They're not evil. They're for my welfare, not for my destruction. The discipline of God doesn't mean that He's broken His promise, friend. Hear me. The discipline of God doesn't mean He's broken His promise. His promise is sure and steadfast even in the midst of great pain. The discipline is a part of a divinely designed plan for your ultimate deliverance in ways you can't even fathom how significant they are. God aims to make you like His Son. In the past, I've said it this way, hard is hard. Hard isn't bad. And I think it's really important that you know the distinction. Hard is hard. Look, life is hard. There are really hard things that happen. And it's important to acknowledge this is hard. But there is a difference between saying hard is hard and saying hard is bad. Hard is not bad. When a loving, sovereign God who has your good in mind is in control. The psalmist cries out, how long, O Lord? And yet at the same time, with the confident, promise-oriented assurance. How long, O Lord? We are your people. How long, O Lord? We're the sheep of your pasture. How long, O Lord? We will praise you from generation to generation. That's an amazing thing to say when you're in the midst of hard circumstances. And yet there's even another promise that's in play here. In fact, when God tells Jeremiah, have faith, believe in me, buy a field in Jerusalem, you're going to come back. And Jeremiah's struggling. Buy a field in Jerusalem? Buy a field? We're, we're, we're in Babylon. And he's kind of ticked off a little bit about what God is doing. Then God says this to him in Jeremiah 32. He tells them about the even bigger plan that God has in store. And there's even a bigger plan for you and me that we don't see. And here's what God says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32, 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, by pestilence. That was Jeremiah's pushback to God about buying this field. Here's what God says, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place. I will make them dwell in safety. And here it comes. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Do you see? The problem isn't just the land or the exile. The problem is the heart. And God says there will come a day when I will not only bring them back, but I will take out this awful heart and I will fix the ultimate problem, which is not the exile. And the ultimate problem isn't Babylon. The ultimate problem is their wayward sinful heart. God was focused on the heart and that's why Babylon came. 
I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Wow. Don't don't miss that last statement. See, the, the comfort, friends, and the hope in the midst of difficult circumstances is this, that God is the one who is behind it all. He is true to His Word, He is faithful to His promises, and He is worthy of your trust when hard things come that don't make sense to you. So does this... Does this sound, does this psalm sound like something that you would pray? Are you able in the midst of hard circumstances to, to see life through this lens? Can, can, can you see hardship through this paradigm? This is hard, but it's not bad. This is really tough. I don't want this in my life. If I had the, if I had the ability to, to pull the stop cord on this thing, I'd pull it right now. I'm, I'm grateful I don't have the, the, the emergency brake cord with God. Cause you know how many times I'd pull that thing? I mean, small conflict in the home, right? Pull it breaks. Forget suffering. I'm talking about like really weak, need, wimpy suffering. I'd pull it all the time. It'd break. God doesn't let you pull that break because in the end, his goal doesn't usually line up with your goals. God wants to make you more like Christ. We want an easy life. I run into people all the time. They they see bad circumstances through this lens. It has to be fair. It has to make sense to me. It has to be over soon. And God must not behind it. Must Must not be behind it. And so, you know what that is? There's no hope in that. There's no hope in that. So I I know there's other challenges in believing that God is ultimately behind all the events in our lives, even the painful ones. I know there are challenges with that. Challenges with the fact of thinking that divinely appointed purposes that God has even behind pain is there. And I know it doesn't solve every problem or answer any question, but in the end, for me, discipline at any level is only hopeful if God is actively and personally orchestrating it. Even if it's, even if I can't figure it out, I gotta believe He's behind it. He's controlling it. It, it's all part of His plan. And that is incredibly comforting. And I don't think this is just what we find in Psalm 79, because I think that the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 and Romans 8 also link two very important concepts. Painful, but yet loving purposes. So God can do painful and also loving things. In the same way, and the writer of Hebrews will talk about this, that a father or a mother does this with their children. I mean, I do painful things for my kids all the time that are really in their best interest. If I let them do what they wanted to, they would die. Seriously. I get, we're, we're walking in Yellowstone, and I got a kid who's walking on a, on a, on a barrier. It's like a 300 foot cliff down there. Could you get down, please? You're scaring me to death. Why? I won't fall. Like, you crazy? There's probably dead kids down there right now, you know? I mean, get off the wall, you know? I gotta tell them. And sometimes they say it strongly, get off the wall now. You know, now. You know, I mean, I got to do stuff to motivate them. So what? what is that? That's a good parent. That's what it is. Any more than if you saw my kids doing that and there are no parents around, you'd be like, where are these kids' parents, right? Who should tell them to get off the wall? That's what God does. He says, get off the wall, hey? Knock it off. You're flirting with disaster. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. 
Listen to what he says. There's, there's like four beautiful promises here. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. What's he saying? He's saying, don't be discouraged when hardship comes. Don't be discouraged. Some of you, you have one bad thing happen in your day. You're like, oh man, it's so hard. Your, your ability to persevere is so immature. You can hardly have any suffering without it completely affecting your entire fabric of your being. And Hebrews says, look, realize, don't be discouraged when hardship comes. Why? Why would he say that? Because secondly, discipline is a token of God's love. Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens and chastises every son he receives. So it's, it's a sign that God loves you that these things come. In the same way that as a parent, it's, it's a sign that I love my kids, that I don't let them do everything that they want to do. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. In other words, the other promise is that understanding discipline, understanding this helps us to endure. We, we have hardship and we're like, yeah, this is why it happens. Because of the next thing is that it's for our ultimate good. Verse 8 if you were left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. There's the rub. I'd rather have this event over than be holy. I'd rather have things go right according to my plans than become righteous. I'd rather not have conflict. I'd rather not have this person in my life. I'd rather not deal with this issue again than to have God use it again and again and again and again to humble me so that He can form and frame the rugged Christ-like holiness that only comes when I'm stripped of self-sufficiency and I'm laid bare and I say, I cannot do this on my own. I need your help. That's what hardship does. It bumps the beaker and it makes you realize you're not God. For the moment, verse 11, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. I'm glad that's in the Bible. Yeah, that's true. Amen. That's right. It does seem painful. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Again, hard is hard. This is hard. This is really hard, but it's not bad. So the book of Hebrews is filled with these warnings in order to help God's people endure. And the book of Hebrews isn't the only place that this happens. Romans 8 does the exact same thing. Regarding the discouragement that could come with suffering, here's what Romans 8 and verse 18 says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. You get it? That's why you need Sunday morning worship. That's why you need to spend time in the Word. Because you get the new value set that hardship comes and you go, this hard thing, this isn't even worth comparing to what's going to happen in my soul. But the problem is, you don't spend time getting the right thought, you will begin to think, why in the world is this happening to me? I just want to be free of pain. I don't care about what's going to be revealed to me in the future. I just want this to stop now. Romans 8 says, no, no, no. You don't think that way. Regarding God's love, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. 
Regarding our ultimate good, Romans 8.28, we know that for those who are love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Everything works according to God's plan. And then, saw this new this week in light of Psalm 79, the cry of how long, O Lord? Romans 8.26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Wow. When you're like, I don't even know what to say. Spirit of God helps. How long, oh Lord, the Spirit makes intercession. It's just beautiful. So how long, O Lord, is the honest cry of a man or a woman under the weight of hard circumstances? You may be there today. You've come to church. You've got a circumstance going on in your life. It is a hard providence. You feel the weight, the pain of it. And what do you do? You cry out, how long, O Lord? You, You acknowledge that this is hard, but you also cling firmly to the promises of God. But this is for my good. I will yet praise you. You are sovereign. I know you are on my side. You are not against me and you live in the tension between how long oh lord and yet i will praise you and there's where you learn to live that's what that's what it means to experience god's discipline now in light of these three passages for jeremiah psalm 79 hebrews 12 romans 8 and number in the book of jeremiah let me give you some summary thoughts about discipline the first is this The Bible's perspective on hard but loving purposes in discipline only applies to those who are followers of Jesus. There's a danger in me talking about all this, like God's loving ends, clinging to His promises. You could be here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, you're not a son of God, and maybe you're still in the process of discovering all of that, and we want to help you in that journey. But I just need to tell you that the passages that I read, they don't apply to you. Because there, there is loving discipline for those who are part of God's family, and there's also condemnation and judgment and retribution for those who are not a part of God's family. So therefore, listen to me, if you don't know Christ, if you're not a follower of His, if you've not repented of your sins and invited Christ to be your Savior and Lord, everything I just said doesn't apply to you. In fact, right now, God is not your friend. He's your enemy. He's not on your side. He's against you. And why? Because He's holy and you're not. And that is a huge, colossal, universal, and eternal problem. And until it's resolved in Christ, anything that comes directly towards you is a just reward for your latent and consistent and persistent rebellion against the holy God. So the Bible sets this up, that there's retribution and judgment on one hand for those who... No, Christ, there's loving and kind but hard discipline. So this ought to be a reason for you to turn to Christ because today you could very well be under His judgment. So all those things that are happening in your life, yeah, it's what you deserve. That's what the Bible says. So what do we do with that? How does that not be like sound like mean? Well, here's why. Because in Christ, God has poured out all of His wrath on Jesus. And therefore, discipline should be distinguished from condemnation and judgment. 
Meaning that God has taken all of his just punishment, all of the just wrath that we deserve for our sin, and he's poured it all out on Jesus. So the aim of just punishment is the payment for sin. And Jesus pays that. And when you receive Christ, it is that God takes his righteousness and gives it to you. He takes your penalty and gives it to Jesus. So discipline, therefore, for the son of God or the daughter of God is still hard and it's still painful, but the end product is our good. Condemnation is harmful justice. Discipline is loving instruction. It's the difference between whether God sees you as his son or whether he sees you as a felon. And the relationship between father and son and judge and felon are entirely different, and Jesus makes all the difference. And it's also important because some of you struggle. You've been a follower of Jesus, you've been a child of God for years, but when hard things come, for a lot of reasons, you feel like God is condemning you, and you you believe the lies of the enemy that God isn't on your side. He's against you. He's trying to get you. He's trying to hurt you. God's doing all these things, and you cannot believe those lies. God is not against you when you're in Christ. He is for you. He's not working against you. He's working for your good. He's not somebody who's mad at you. He's poured all his wrath out in Christ. You are now his son and his daughter. Therefore, everything that happens to you in Christ is now designed for loving and good aims. And you have to believe that when hardship comes. Third, and this is an important issue, I believe that there are some discipline that is directly linked in a cause-effect relationship with specific and known sin. In other words, there are some discipline, some disciplines that happen, some discipline that takes place that's a direct consequence of, of real, specific, and known sin. And so we have to think of discipline in two layers. In one case, out of love, there are some times that God gives us hard consequences because there's a direct sin that requires a hard consequence. I mean, I do that as a parent, right? My kids do something wrong. And there's a direct consequence. I love them enough to discipline them and discipline them clearly. The challenge, though, is how do you know when a discipline is directly tied to a very specific sin issue? Back to my question with how do I know that some sin issue in my life didn't cause the death of my daughter? And here's the answer that I've come up with. It does me and it does God no good for me to wonder if this sin has caused this discipline. And so when sin and discipline are linked, you know, and you know it immediately. You do something wrong, and bang, a consequence comes. And you know, whoa, this was because of that. You can spend all your life trying to figure it out, and the devil can get you stuck into this constant evaluation process. You know, because you and God are not served without you knowing if this issue caused this consequence. And if the consequence comes, you ought to be thankful that God surfaced it, he made it evident, and therefore he loves you as a son and wouldn't let you get away with whatever you were doing. On the other hand, you need to know that all hardship has a disciplining effect. Surfacing latent sin at varying levels so that it can be dealt with. So on another level, while there are certain cause-effect relationships with sin and consequence, it's also true that all discipline is because of sin. Maybe not consequentially, but all discipline is because of it. And think of how you do it as a parent. I mean, because of immaturity in my children, there are certain things that I require of them. What time to go to bed, brush your teeth, 
I mean, there are certain disciplines, pain, that I put into their life intentionally in order so that they can grow. And that's the same thing that God does. So there's another layer to this, another level. Every hardship is part of God's overall plan to surface what we don't see in ourselves. And nothing does that better than hardship. And so here's one of the freedoms that comes because of this. So you can look at difficulties and illness and disappointments and challenges and conflicts and a myriad of other hard circumstances. You see how they bump your beaker. They reveal the sediment of ugliness that still remains in us. And you can embrace that and say, God, I don't know all the reasons why, but I'm going to embrace every lesson you want me to learn through this. And that, friend, brings freedom. Because you can say, I don't know all the cause-effect reasons, but what I do know is this is surfacing stuff in my soul that I need to be able to deal with. It means, listen, that there is no pain in life that is pointless when it comes to making you like Jesus. Nothing. And here's the final thing. And it's this, that God is able and willing to use all things, all things, both good and evil things, for divinely designed and righteous purposes. Some of you have had things in your life that are awful. You know God can even use those for divinely designed purposes? God can redeem anything. And if you don't believe that, then look at the cross. He used the murder of his own son to to redeem his people. You know how frustrating it must be to be Satan? Everything you do works according to God's plan. The beautiful hope of that is while Satan is evil and while he is the active agent, he is not free, and even his plans work according to the overall sovereign plan of God. Nothing that happens to you, even your death, even your death, is outside of God's ability to use for your good. So the implication of this to me is stunning and it serves as my conclusion. It means that you can say on the one hand, how long, O Lord, and at the same time say, but we are your people, we give thanks forever. It means that you can say, this is hard, but this is not bad. It means that you can confidently say, this is painful, this is really painful, but this is not pointless. And you cling to God's promise. Lord Jesus, this um, remaining sinfulness issue within us is a, a battle that we don't deal with when we're comfortable and secure and free of conflict. And so I thank you that you bring these hard providences in our lives to get our attention, to wake us up, to... Show us what still needs to be dealt with. And we pray that you'd forgive us for the, the ways in which we complain and we crumble so easily. We need your help to be on your agenda and your plan. We thank you for psalms like Psalm 79 that so clearly call us to be honest with our pain at the same time to link our souls to the promise of God. And Lord, I pray today that you would, by your Spirit, give hope to those who are sons and daughters of yours that there's no pain, no pain that's pointless. And Father, for those today who are still under your judgment, still under the retribution of your wrath, I pray that today they might see their need to come to Christ and might run to him and receiving him might become a son and daughter of yours. Thank you for this great text. It's really helpful. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
As always, friends, these folks are up here to pray for you. If you've got something going on in your soul that you'd like to have them pray about, they're here to minister and encourage you today, okay? So use them as God would lead you. All right, God bless you, College Park. I love you. Great to be back. Have a good day.